Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about some new support that's been found for Lebanon in their economic crisis, uh, the Tunisian political crisis, and renewing tensions in the English Channel between, well, England and France. All that and more, coming up. Alright, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Indian and Chinese commanders in the Himalayas have engaged in talks uh, along the entirety of the disputed Himalayan border region uh, known as the Line of Actual Control. So it's basically the entire border between India and China because the Himalayas basically are their border with like Nepal and Bhutan smushed in between them. And their commanders at the really, really local levels are having talks, probably trying to demarcate the border. Um... And we'll we'll see where this goes. Probably going to lead to an agreement that'll be immediately broken by one of the two sides, as they both are continuing to build up their infrastructure in these regions along their border to beef up their ability to send troops to the border. And I can only imagine that eventually that's going to lead to something, something pretty bad. Whether that'll initiate all-out war or whether that'll be all-out war. Or instead, just larger scale border skirmishes. Uh, that that remains to be seen. But I don't think, I don't think these two are on track towards a compromise just yet. It seems more that they both uh, are looking to get something out of this uh, rather than to de-escalate. And when both sides are looking to not de-escalate, you you get escalation. Uh, so we'll, we'll see where this goes. It's always interesting to look at the interactions between China and India, especially in the light of their looming and, in many ways, very real, or already real, I should say, Cold War. India has an alliance system designed to counter China just through, um, what am I trying? Just through geographic necessity geostrategic necessity there we go there we go because india has a border with china so they are the most reluctant to have a war with china um them and taiwan um not because india is afraid of losing the war like taiwan is taiwan is uh, very very afraid as they probably should be because i've made it clear I believe full-heartedly China already has the capability to take the island, but now they're just crossing T's and dotting I's, and according to Taiwanese, they feel that by 2024 or 2025, the Chinese will have full capability to take the island, and that means to take it with minimal losses, and those sentiments seem to be reciprocated by similar level officials on the Chinese side. So... We're probably going to see a showdown for that island in the near future. And I guess would really, we, we one would have to look for, I'm stuttering all over the place, I guess what we'd really have to look for is whether or not the U.S. will press the issue and force a conflict earlier. Because that's what seems to be the direction we're on right now. I don't know if the U.S. is going to pull back at the last moment, or if... Perhaps China is just going to say, I guess those losses that we want to avoid are just going to have to be acceptable because we can't have this go on like this. We can't have Taiwan being bolstered by the U.S. and the U.S. keeps using Taiwan as a linchpin against us, um, especially if the U.S. is getting more and more belligerent because more and more alliances... And what I mean by that is, from the Chinese perspective, the increasing number of U.S. commitments 
in the region around China is going to be viewed by China as aggressive. Now, we over here will see China as being the aggressor. They're building islands in the South China Sea. They're flying jets over Taiwanese airspace. They're skirmishing with India on the border. They're skirmishing with their neighbors in the South China Sea using fishing boats. And they're mobilizing a, a whole maritime, uh, a maritime militia, really. And that's actually what it is, a maritime militia. So we can see all of those, and we will see China as being the aggressor. But it's always important to factor in how the other side views the situation. So we view China as the aggressor. We can see the things that they do. But then when you flip the script, and you're from the point of view of China, you see a superpower coming across the ocean to start meddling in your neighborhood. Now, that by itself is going to be viewed as aggressive, especially when one of those countries that this foreign power, this very strong foreign power, is meddling in uh, is effectively a country, quote-unquote country, I mean... And that's by the legal definition. Taiwan is basically a country, but neither they nor anyone else is recognizing them as a country. So it's strange. Very, it's a strange situation, but we're just going to refer to them as a country, you know, for simplicity. But when you have this country that is 110 miles away from you, that you're technically still at war with, because that country was formed from the remnants of your civil war, the other side of your civil war that you won, when this country is ruled by the people you fought against in that civil war, and this foreign entity comes from across the ocean and starts guaranteeing their independence from you, but that foreign power is not native to the region that you're in, well, obviously you're going to view them as being the clear and obvious aggressors. And that's something we have to take into account. Everyone here views themselves as victims. But China has power, so they don't necessarily have to be a victim. In their eyes, they can strike out at the opportune moment to change the strategic calculus in their favor. And I believe that's what they're going to do. I do believe that the Chinese mean what they say when they say they want peace, but that comes with a twist. Right? That comes with a uh, twist, and that twist is they want that peace, they want the, whatever the order is in the region to be centered around and underwritten by China and Chinese power. They do not want a order or peace in a region that is dictated by the U.S. or some other power. Not even India, really, or Japan. They want it to be centered around them. Because from their point of view, that is peace. Because that's peace of mind for China. And that's sort of the way you should look at, you should look at the uh, things that they say through a lens like that, that is centered around China. What would, me, what would peace mean from the Chinese perspective? Not necessarily from our perspective, they have a very different view on a lot of the same things we're talking about. So, looking at those two perspectives, we can see that in the near future, there's going to be a conflict, and China is going to take the island of Taiwan. So what really we have to look out for is if the U.S. is going to press the issue earlier, because China's not going to press the issue earlier unless they feel that the U.S. is pushing the issue. So we also, not, not only do we have to look out for the U.S. pressing the issue, but we have to look out for China feeling as though the U.S. is pressing the issue, because either of them can initiate this conflict. Taiwan's not going to. They just don't, they don't want those problems. But they're caught between a, a rock and a very, very, very hard place. As a matter of fact, I, I think they're caught between two tectonic plates. So... We have to we have to look out for those. Now, you all know where I stand. I don't want us over there. But I cannot just pretend that what I want is the way things are going down right now. We got to look at the actions. 
And the actions point to conflict right now. We have AUKUS, the U.S. is providing, the U.S. and the U.K. are helping to provide Australia with submarines. That has a lot of ramifications regarding France, and we'll see where that goes. I imagine it's going to lead to France eventually going down their own path in a more official manner. But that's that's one alliance. You have the U, the Anzus, which is the um. Let me get this. The Anzus, that is Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. There we go. That alliance that's between well the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand, and then you have the U.S. defense agreement with Japan. You have the binding defense contract between India and Japan, which the U.S. has sort of integrated itself into via the Quad, uh, it integrated itself and Australia into, kind of, by the Quad, um, I guess in a more formal manner, because Australia kind of fell in line with that same alliance just through geostrategic necessity. Because when they got kicked out of China, and what I mean by that is they got hit with a trade war by China. They couldn't just be cozied up to China because of that. They had to find new partners in the region. And the natural two were India and Japan. So that was already going on. Then then the U.S. comes in and reintroduces the concept of the quad because it was technically there before. But now it's sort of all over the news whenever we talk about this region. All of these alliances that the U.S. has gotten either gotten into or leads or created or is attempting to create are all viewed by China as aggressions on China. And in a way, they're, they're pretty, they're not wrong for thinking that. Uh, but then again, we're not wrong for thinking that the Chinese are aggressive because they're building, <laughs> they're building islands in the South China Sea and they're skirmishing with all their neighbors. So there is truth. To both sides of this equation but we have to look at perspectives and where those perspectives lead in terms of actions actions point to conflict right now we'll see though we'll really have to see i believe china will make their move but whether whether or not they go earlier or they go later say around that 2024 to 2025 marker um, is largely, I feel, going to be determined by the actions of the U.S. Because India is not going to press the issue until they feel that, well, they're ready. And I imagine even if India feels that they're ready, they're probably still not going to press the issue because they have a land border with China, and that their calculus is going to be way, way different than Japan, Australia, and the U.S., who don't have borders with China. They'd, we'd be in a naval engagement, a naval and air battle. India will be fighting for their life, basically. So, I don't see them pressing the issue. Japan is putting their weight behind Taiwan, uh, increasingly so. And we talked about this before. And even their new prime minister is um, on board with that. So, they're increasingly adding themselves to the Taiwan equation specifically, not just a broader anti-China coalition, but they're in there, so as they build up their naval forces, we might see them start doing things that make the Chinese feel as though the calculus is changing a bit too fast uh, against us, and it will take even longer to amass the forces that we'd need to take Taiwan with minimal losses. And so they might feel that it's necessary to strike earlier than they wanted. Or perhaps the U.S. sends uh, three carrier battle groups into the region, and the Chinese go, okay, well, now we, we just have to, we might want to do something about this. Or maybe China wants to catch everyone by surprise and they just strike early anyway. We really don't know when, but we can look at actions to get an idea of how close we are as we come up to that 2024-2025 marker where people in China and Taiwan believe China will have the capability to take Taiwan with minimal losses. And so we'll keep our eyes on that. And I, 
that went on. That one, I mean, this is just one note about a, a border skirmish that was being partially resolved, gone into a 14 minute long uh, me getting this off my chest with regards to the things going on in this region. But hey, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Wasn't expecting it, but we'll take it. Uh, meanwhile, the president of the Czech Republic has been taken to the hospital. Uh, we don't know why yet, but he's there. I don't think he's dead. I mean, he's probably alive. So anyway, a car bomb attack in Yemen has rocked the city of Aden. Uh, and this was targeted at the governor of the region. Uh, the blast killed six and injured seven. Uh, the governor and the accompanying agriculture minister survived. Uh, and it's rumored that they were targeted because they are pro-secession in that region. Uh, the region of Aden and the city seceding from Yemen as a whole. And that is interesting because it opens up a whole new question as to what's going down in Yemen. Because we already know that they're in a, a bit of a, a civil conflict between them and the Houthis. But now... Um, well, I guess this has probably been going on for a while, but brought to my attention, now there's secessionists that I know of in Aden. And that's a pretty major city for Yemen, if I'm not mistaken. So it appears Yemen is fracturing uh, pretty badly. And we'll see where that goes. Will the Houthis just walk in and take Aden, the port of Aden, take the city? and add it to the Iranian sphere of influence? Who knows? Will Yemen make a comeback and um, end their civil war? Who knows? It doesn't look like that's going to be the case. I mean, it really doesn't look like that's going to be the case, but yeah, I'll always leave the possibility there. Uh, in France, the interior minister has be initiated calls for a migration treaty between Britain and the EU over the growing numbers of migrants crossing the English Channel from France to Britain. And this also comes after the continued trade talks between uh, the UK and the EU that have renewed concerns over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this is one of the things I wanted to get to. Uh, the tensions between the UK and France slash the EU um, I don't see the EU as being a, a really cohesive entity, so really we're talking individual member states here. I, I've sort of elaborated on this before, on how I don't see the EU itself as a great power, uh, but paradoxically, countries within the EU are themselves great powers, like Germany, France, uh, and previously the UK. So... It's a bit of a weird thing, but in this case, we're really just talking about the UK and France. Because I don't think Germany cares too much about migrants crossing the English Channel. And I certainly don't think the Spanish care, because they're dealing with their own. Uh, and I guess uh, with regards to the way Spain feels about it, that can be applied to the four Mediterranean uh, EU states that have basically signed a treaty, a pact... Uh, to limit migration through their regions, and these are all southern EU states. Uh, I believe it was Spain, Italy, Malta, and Greece. So a, ni a nice spread across southern Europe. So they feel probably sympathetic to the, the UK, if anything else, because um, they're dealing with basically the same thing, just on a much larger scale, because they're right there, and they're the first destinations people traveling by the cheapest of means to get into Europe. They're not coming by plane, they're coming by boats and, well, foot. So, I don't think they're going to be too uh, upset with the UK over the migration issue. But France, oddly enough, is. Namely because uh, the French, even though they're cracking down on Muslims in France right now, it seems strange that in the midst of that, they would then not have stronger border controls. Uh, and I know that they do have stronger border controls, and that was sort of a part of this larger crackdown that we covered last year. 
But it's strange to see that instead of working with Britain, who is also concerned about illegal migration, they are working against Britain on this issue. It's very strange, and I think it's counterintuitive for French interests that they've made clear and abundant on their own, uh, that they, instead of working with a country that has these same things in common that you're worried about, you're working against them to propagate the things that you yourself are trying to crack down on. It's, it's a very strange situation, but um, it has renewed tensions between Britain and France, and things have been heating up between those two in recent, well, months. Uh, I remember one story in particular when a bunch of Fr French fishermen started swarming the island of Jordan. Uh, I mean, no, it wasn't Jordan, it was Jersey, I believe. So the these are small islands owned by Britain that are just off the coast of France. Um, and so a bunch of French fishermen basically put the island under blockade and the UK sent a destroyer to clear them out. And that was a massive, probably one of the larger escalations between the two since, what, the 19th century? I think so. I mean, unless you count uh, the British destroying the French Navy in World War II, or unless you count Vichy France as official France, and technically the UK and Vichy France were at war, but... We haven't we haven't really seen this these sorts of tensions between the UK and France in a long time, but France, uh, through a lot of their pretty wild swings in policy positions, have started rekindling a lot of their old rivalries, and the British being chief among them. But that was one thing that started tensions. The other thing was the the British contemplating and debating pulling back on the North Ireland Protocol, which is basically a protocol where Northern Ireland uh, keeps its borders and trade restrictions low to non-existent between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, where they would then impose those restrictions on the UK, the country it's a part of. So it's been a point of contention towards people in the UK for the obvious reason that why should a piece of our country have restrictions against us but be open to trade with you, the entity we just left, because the Republic of Ireland is a member of the EU. So by having that open border between those two, you basically have Northern Ireland as a part of the EU, and you have EU trade barriers between a piece of your country and you. So that's been an obvious point of contention, and it's started to come back into the fray uh, as the two have continued their trade talks um, to try to get some sort of agreement, but it seems like it's just opening up new wounds, right? Well, opening up old wounds right now. And I... I'll be honest, I don't know quite where this goes, especially how... Uh, how wild France has been acting lately. Uh, you also factor in that France is in an election year right now. We might see Macron do something a bit, a, something strange for a bit of change. Uh, that change being the vote in April. Or was it May? It's sometime around there when the election happens in France. But like I said before, everything that they do at this point has to be viewed through the lens of the fact that they're in an election year. Everything Macron does, you have to view through the lens of the fact that he's in an election. Uh, and he's obviously trying to win, because as far as we know, he's tied with his opposition right now. So, those are, those are new things that we've talked about coming back into the fray. We haven't really talked about Europe in a while. Uh, not, not like that, anyway. We talked about Europe having their energy crisis last episode... Uh, in the episode before that, we were talking about the UK's energy crisis, but these sorts of um, inter-country geopolitical events where there's tensions involved or there's a, a deal involved, we haven't really talked about Europe all that much. I mean, there was Germany and Russia, 
but we were really just talking about Russia, <laughs> not so much Germany. Uh, but we did talk about the implications of that. But anyway, we're we're gonna try to get through the uh, the rapid fire news as though it was actually rapid fire now. So uh, the yeah, we're just gonna get into it. The U.S. is set to host the Abraham Accords. Uh, well, it's set to host an Abraham Accords meeting with Israel and the UAE uh, sometime this week, I believe. Uh, three U.S. embassy staff members have been accused of theft by the Russian government, and Russia now wants uh, their diplomatic immunity to be revoked so they can investigate them. Meanwhile, in the Balkans, Bosnian Serbs vow secession from the country and they're obviously in case you're a bit confused by that statement because serbia is a country uh ethnic serbs living in bosnia are vowing to secede the region where they're sort of the the bulk ethnicity they're the dominant ethnicity and so that's a, a tiny piece of bosnia they're vowing to take that piece of bosnia and secede from bosnia and likely that although they didn't say this i'll I'll just go the extra length and say that it's likely that they'll probably make some sort of attempt at unification with serbia itself and that given the region sorry about that the garage door open but um uh where was i yeah so bosnia serbs in bosnia want to secede from bosnia Probably going to try to make attempt at unification with Serbia. That is conflict. I can just see it now. That is conflict. That is going to be one hell of a conflict. And I think Serbia might win. I think Serbia might win. I mean, looking at that region, I can't help but feel like it's just ripe for some new power to emerge from it. Uh, And sort of eat up the region um uh, here we go i got my trusty google earth in front of me and yeah so bosnia has a very long border with serbia and if those serbs do make that attempt at secession and serbia backs them up we might have a conflict and that conflict might even lead to the wholesale annexation of bosnia by serbia should it be allowed to go through because, well, I don't. I know that Serbia is not a part of NATO. I know that, but Bosnia is not a part of NATO. So the potential for conflict is there, and NATO, the chances of it being brought into that conflict, are about as minimal as it's going to get. Um. Especially when you consider that Serbia is likely to have the backing of Russia. Um, So, that might actually be a whole war that's just fought. With weapon sales obviously going on on the two sides. And military advisors stepping in. But that might actually just be a war between just Bosnia and just Serbia meaning that there might be a winner. Although I'm sure there'll be attempts at mediation between the two, but before the war, but we might see conflict should those Serbs in Bosnia try to secede. And if Bosnia uses force to try to put them down and Serbia steps in, it's, I mean, you can just see it. You can just see it right there. Very, very interesting thing that I noted but that is potential conflict in the region I did bring up though that I felt as though there's sort of a there's sort of a vacuum in this area and I felt that it was ripe to be filled by some country uh, before it was Hungary after that it was Austria who conquered it well, well it was Hungary then it was the Ottomans then it was Austria uh, combined with the Ottomans, and then over time it was Austria-Hungary who ate up more and more of the Balkans. Then when Austria-Hungary fell, it was Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, who c- occupied most of the 
coastline of this region running from uh, Serbia itself all the way up to Slovenia. And now there's no power in this region, no major power anyway, but there could be, and there might be. Uh, I don't know when, but I do know that usually that's what happens in this region, and it just remains to be seen whether that power will arise from within it, or if it'll be sort of external in, in the form of Hungary, or perhaps a renewed Austria, or maybe even a resurgent Ottoman Empire. We'll, we'll have to see. I feel like there'll be a power that occupies that region in a sort of a official manner, but we'll, we'll just have to see. Meanwhile, Syrian air defense systems have intercepted a missile strike from Israel, uh, and five Mali soldiers have been killed in an Islamist attack. Whew. Now, how's that for rapid-fire news? <laughs> But lots of interesting things to talk about. Really interesting. I know I, that's sort of a, another phrase of mine. Oh, these are some interesting things. But they are. They really are. I mean, you saw it just took up half an hour talking about the rapid fire news. But I have Lebanon and Tunisia to talk about as well. And we'll get to those in just a minute. All right. And we are back. And now we're talking about Lebanon. We're getting right into the meat. And we're going to tear it up like a... Like an alligator. Yeah. So, the king of Jordan, the country, Abdullah II, has pledged to stand by Lebanon. And this comes amidst some gathering international support for the country. That country being Lebanon, mind you. Uh, in just the last few weeks, Jordan has promised to supply Lebanon with electricity, uh, that electricity running through Syrian territory to get to Lebanon. Egypt has promised natural gas supplies to Lebanon. Those natural gas running uh, lines running through Jordan's territory. And there was, of course, the much larger gain, and I'd say much more influential gain, uh, of the Iranian fuel that came through Iraq and through Syria to get to parts of southeastern Lebanon. So we have uh, the entire region, really, uh, minus certain players. Uh, a lot of the region, I, I guess I'll just say they're rallying behind them. Um, specifically, Lebanon now appears to be the rallying point of the Iranian sphere of influence. That sphere of influence being Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Houthi, Yemen, Lebanon itself, and of course, Iran. So, not counting uh, Lebanon here, that only leaves Yemen. Uh, the Houthi control parts of Yemen out, as Iraq has allowed the energy from Iran to get there. Syria has allowed Iranian energy to get there, so they're on board. Jordan's pledging their support, they're giving electricity through Syria, so that reinforces the Syrian aspect of this sort of coalition, Iranian-led coalition, behind uh, Lebanon. Uh, as it stands, the only member of the Iranian sphere of influence, again, not counting Lebanon itself, is Houthi Yemen, but they're in a bit of a, a tight spot right now. It's understandable as to why they're not sending energy. They're sort of the rebellion in Lebanon, uh, not Lebanon, in Yemen. So, well, that and they're disconnected physically, geographically. They have to go through Arabia or through the Red Sea, I guess. Maybe they could go through the Red Sea. I don't know. They're, they're preoccupied. So, they're just the only ones in that Iranian sphere of influence who haven't given any meaningful support to Lebanon. So what we have here is the Iranian sphere of influence rallying behind Lebanon. Egypt, although I should stress, is not a part of the Persia Pact. The Persia Pact being the unofficial name that I have now given to this grouping of countries within the Iranian sphere of influence. Maybe, maybe it'll stick. 
maybe it'll become official in some way. Uh, but the Persia Pact, I feel, is it flows off the tongue a lot easier than saying the Iranians' fear of influence. So, the Persia Pact, um, Egypt's not a part of it. But Egypt, uh, they are now present here as well. Uh, present in Lebanon as well. So they do have a little bit of influence there. But the obvious implication of this massive rallying of support behind Lebanon among the Persia Pact is that specifically the countries that make up this increase in support um, they, these are all a part of the Iranian sphere of influence which means which means that Iran now has a decisive lead in the influence battle in Lebanon and to think it started off with France being in the lead, they were the first to act. And they had an economic recovery plan and everything. They had aid money. They came out the gate strong, but then Iran sort of just walked in and crossed the finish. Well, we haven't crossed the finish line yet, but Iran has taken a decisive lead. And instead of doing it on their own, they've, they've rallied their allies. They've rallied their, their fellow Persia Pact members. Uh to do this with them and they it wouldn't be possible without it they they couldn't have gotten that energy to lebanon um without the support of iraq and syria jordan wouldn't be able to get their electricity to lebanon without the cooperation of syria because the electricity goes through lines that run through syrian territory and even egypt wouldn't even be able to be participate in this in the way that they're trying to participate through natural gas if Jordan wasn't on board. And this is an Iranian-led effort. It really is. Because most of these countries uh, aren't exactly following in the French... Uh, uh, they're not following the French template for how they're going to help Lebanon. They're doing the Iranian template, which is direct physical assistance in terms of energy and electricity. And, well, heating, where the French gave money, the Iranians and those taking after the Iranian model are sending resources, energy resources. And that that's going to have a much bigger impact on the lives of the average Lebanese person who their power plants have been shut down. and But they've been reopened now because of all the extra inflow of energy coming from Iran, Jordan, and now, soon enough, even Egypt. So that's a huge, that's a huge win in terms of who has greater influence when the average person in Lebanon is going to attribute the fact that they have electricity and warm water to the people who gave them the energy. Iran and the Persia Pact. And that's going to solidify Lebanon's position probably within the Persia Pact. Whereas before it was sort of, uh, sort of a loose member. It was up there with Jordan and the Houthis as loose members. But this is sort of going to knit them further in. And I guess we're also seeing it knitting Jordan further in to the Persia Pact as well. And we'll see where the Houthis go. I'd imagine that they have the distance, the strategic distance to, well, distance themselves from Iran a bit. But, uh, we'll see, we'll see. We'll really just have to see. But what we can see for now is that Iran and the Persia Pact, oh, I love the term, they're making great gains in Lebanon and Lebanese people are all the better for it. So we'll continue to watch this influence battle. I'm surprised I was able to call it so quickly. And I'm happy I get to cover its developments. Uh, like, especially when there's so many developments to cover. I am very happy. Very, very happy. And I'm sure the people in Lebanon getting uh, this support from all their neighbors, uh, all minus Israel, and I, I guess Turkey as well, they're sort of quiet on the issue. Uh, but 
from so many of their neighbors. I'm sure they probably feel very nice and warm inside. And it's a nice and warm thing to watch. It's also a nice and warm thing to watch the geopolitical implications of that warm and fuzzy feeling inside. But we'll just, we'll leave that on the table for now. As we move on to the other piece of the news, the political crisis in Tunisia. So, uh, for this story, I sort of take it back in time a little bit. It won't take too long, though. So, back in July, the Tunisian president, Kai, uh, how do I say this? Kais Saeed, uh, Sayed, there we go. Kais Sayed, there we go. The Tunisian president, Kais Sayed, he dismissed the prime minister of the country, he suspended parliament, and he assumed executive authority. So, sort of a, a strange repeat of what we saw in, what was it, Nepal. The political crisis in Nepal, where the the president, or actually in that case it was the prime minister, not the president, but here it's the president instead of the prime minister. Back in Nepal, the prime minister suspended parliament um, and basically tried to rule the country himself. The judiciary stepped in. Um, he overruled them for a time, but eventually he sort of, he gave in and the political crisis ended after a while. And that was sort of the, the nice, cozy resolution to that crisis. But here we have a bit of a, a repeat of that, uh, uh, the early stages of that, where the, the leader of the country dismisses parliament um, and assumes total control. And except this time, instead of having the passive backing of the other side, because uh, the prime minister of Nepal had the backing, the passive backing of the president of the country, Instead, here it is the president who has dismissed the prime minister and suspended parliament uh, and assumed executive authority. And since then, uh, since he did these things back in July, uh, Sayed has promised to appoint a committee to amend the Tunisian constitution while also asserting that he would rule by decree, uh, and he has done such. Recently, Syed has appointed a new prime minister, Najla. Najla. Uh, I'm I'm really messing up these names. I am unfamiliar with uh, these sorts of pronunciations. Uh, you, look, I've done my best so far, but I I guess this happens to the best of us. So Nala Boden Ramdane Ramdane. Nala Bodin Ramdane, and that's as that's as best as I'm gonna get here. So he appointed Nala, Bru, Nala Bodin Ramdane, uh, and uh, he appointed her as the new prime minister, and as the interim interior minister. And uh, just uh, pray for me for this one, Rita Garsalawi, Rita Garsalawi. Uh, you know what? I'll give I'll give them points. They they finally got me. They finally got me. I've done so well for so long. They finally got me. But um, so those are the two. Uh, and if you uh, couldn't understand what I've said, uh, just look up the story. <laughs> look at the story. I'm, I know for a fact I'm not doing these names justice. But um, he's appointed those two as the new prime minister and the interim interior minister. And meanwhile, President Syed has also promised to have a, to have a dialogue on the country's future, uh, although he gave no certain date on when that dialogue might be. Uh, and that sort of catches us up to the present day, where, where recently large protests against Syed uh, as well as large showings of support for him, uh, have raised, in my mind, the question of civil war in Tunisia. The question of civil war in Tunisia, and that, and so it was. It was the protests against him that uh, ultimately grabbed my attention to this story in the first place, because I saw it while I was scrolling through my news app, and 
sort of dug in, and that's how I found out that there were massive showings of support in favor of him as well. So it's a split, and it has opened. And given the size of these protests and support rallies, protests and rallies, the size of them have opened, in my mind, the question, the question, the very humble but not so peaceful question of, will there be civil war in Tunisia? And I was, I was, I mean, I was just talking about the extensive breakdown of the American-led order in Africa and how that has caused the continent, due to the straight-up absence of any real American presence there uh, in this era of the American order. Uh, I've talked about how the continent has returned to the era, or an era, where conflict as a means of solving one's problems, were on the table. And we can we can really see that when we look at countries like Egypt. <laughs> Egypt is my favorite. They're just buying weapons like a madman, and we know who those weapons are for. Just, we're just... <laughs> you, you gotta love geopolitics sometimes. You know, when it's, when it's other people... <laughs> I know it's so petty to say, but when it's other people, it's so great to watch. Uh, but at the very least, I, I can counterbalance that pettiness with my stance on uh, the U.S. involvement in certain places around the world. As I laid out so brilliantly, you know, just toot my own horn, so brilliantly in the anniversary episode. Uh, check it out, check it out. Anniversary episode, so great. But, but, back to the task at hand, uh, we, we were just talking about how Africa has returned to an era where conflict as a means of solving one's problems is back on the table, and a lot of those conflicts are about to emerge in the near future, or at the very least, that's what they look like they're going to do. Um, uh, we've also talked about how the destabilization in the continent breeds further destabilization in this sort of negative feedback loop of... Uh, not stable environments. Uh, Libya is in a civil war. That one may be drawing to a close. All right, I have my suspicions, although the two sides, uh, and this is sort of new news as well, the two sides have agreed to removing mercenaries, uh, well, a withdrawal of mercenaries from their conflict. So we might actually see a peace between them. I was so suspicious and doubtful of that, but we might actually see peace. And that is basically me admitting that I might be wrong on this one. Because uh, for the longest, I just didn't think it was going to happen. Uh, namely because large militias in, say, Tripoli were saying that they're just not going to acknowledge the results of the election. Um... But it seems like the two sides, the Libyan government and General Haftar, have really, really pulled their act together for the sake of peace in the country. Uh, to the point where they've gotten this far, where they're getting mercenaries out. And that's, that basically means Turkey can't have their janissaries there. Uh, and I, I point to Turkey because they're sort of, a, sort of a, a mainstay of the mercenary era right now. Uh, the modern mercenary era, I should say, they're sort of a sort of a, a a key buyer. They're a top buyer of mercenary services. We saw it in the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, we and of course this was the other theater where they had mercenaries active, and I've taken to calling them janissaries. But um. Now the two sides have agreed to the withdrawal of mercenaries, and that is a massive step in and of itself, namely because of the foreign influence that that has enabled in their war. And when you sort of take steps to remove the foreign influence, you are taking steps towards a resolution of the conflict. Because as we can observe in a whole bunch of other civil wars, when foreign power is getting involved, it sort of drags the process out. Um, but... In this case, they're removing that. So we might actually see peace. And that is... Uh, that, that blows my mind. 
It, I mean, it really does. I, I just, I didn't think we'd get to that point. Uh, I mean, they're not a piece yet. They're not a piece yet. They still have the elections in December, and we still have to see if those results will hold on both sides. But the fact that they're here, all right, wow. Color me impressed. Color me impressed. Um, but that's Libya, the destabilization there, which seems to be coming to an end. Algeria and Morocco, though, they're, they're not even on speaking terms anymore. Uh, and they're, they're almost as bad, they're almost as addicted to buying weapons as Egypt is right now. And Egypt is making a massive uh, gamble. They're making a massive bid for military supremacy, which I can only imagine is going to be used in a confrontation with Ethiopia. Ethiopia, which itself is, it's, it's in a civil war as well. There's so much destabilization, and it just breeds more and more. Um, Sudan narrowly, and I mean narrowly, sidestepped their own civil conflict by resolving their power struggle issue that they had. And we talked about the potential for destabilization there, because it was also paralleling what happened in Nepal. But they sort of got it together, as well as Nepal, and that they avoided that sort of problem, uh, at least for now. Because had they destabilized and fallen into a civil conflict of some kind, Ethiopia's civil war might have spilled into Sudan. And in the process, we might have seen Egyptian troops just get ever closer to that dam on the Nile River. It is my firm belief that when the time... Well, that when the Egyptians feel that the time is right, they're, they're going to they're gonna have some massive missile barrage that's just going to go hurtling over Sudan and straight into Ethiopia in some last-ditch attempt to destroy the dam. That, um, either that or they do some covert ops and they start planting mines and they destroy the dam to, through sabotage. That's also an option, but... Given the course of action that they appear to be taking, that does not seem to be the course of action that they've chosen. It seems to me that they're going with the blow it up route because they're getting missiles and jets and more rockets. So we might have quite the show on our hands. When they get around, there's so much conflict building up, so much conflict. I feel like every time I turn the podcast on talking about conflict and some potential conflict, but that's what it seems like. And I know there's going to be some new piece that arises out of it, uh, at least depending on the region you're in, it'll be peace, relatively speaking. Uh, I know China does want peace in their region, but we, I've discussed exactly what that means, well, as exactly what I believe that means, and it, it's a peace centered around China. But that's going to be a regional order, not a global order. The Middle East. There's probably going to be a showdown between Turkey and Iran at some point. Uh, and we, we might see a regional order come out of that. The Eastern Mediterranean. There's going to be a showdown between Turkey and France. And there will be a regional order that comes out of that. Uh, there might even be a showdown between the British and the French over the English Channel. And there might be a regional order that comes out of that. If Morocco and Algeria go to war, and they're not on speaking terms, so they're not exactly on the path towards avoiding war right now, if they fight it out, we might see France and Spain step in to try to mediate, and they might send in their troops as peacekeepers to end the conflict, and they'll end up with de facto colonies in Spanish Morocco and French Algeria. Oh, wait, I mean, I mean uh, Morocco and Algeria. What? Who said that? But um, we, we see the potential for conflict. We, just, we see the potential for conflict in so many places. Ukraine is being eaten alive, and Russia now has them in the sights. And it's just a matter of waiting to see when the Russians are going to pull the trigger. Um, I imagine that the most opportune moment that that's going to be is should the U.S. get into a conflict over Taiwan... Russia just finishes their business there and maybe spawns a couple rebellions in the Baltics just to establish new facts on the ground that 
NATO can't really respond to, especially if the U.S. is distracted. Hell, the Russians might even just go all in on annexing the Baltics and they'll catch Europe by surprise. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, especially if they're able to use Belarus as a staging ground to do that. Um, and it'll it'll really just be too much for Europe to handle. As, as European militaries stand right now, France is the only one with an army. Turkey uh, is technically outside of Europe, but their army isn't going anywhere. Greece's army isn't going anywhere because uh, they're suspicious of each other. And Turkey has violence that is the Middle East on their southeast. The Greek and Turkish armies aren't going anywhere. They're certainly not going to go to Poland. Uh, and they're certainly not going to go to Ukraine. Well, maybe the, maybe the Turkish Janissaries might. But as it stands, aside from those two, France is the only one in Europe with an army. Uh, and their army is not nearly going to be large enough to do anything about the Russian Red Army. Certainly not enough to save the Baltics or Ukraine. And quite frankly, I'd imagine the French are just going to try to stay out of that one. To sort of gain leverage, enough leverage, to uh, cozy up to Russia in the future. Because they want good relations with Russia, and they might leverage peace to get that. And that'll come as a massive shocker to everyone depending on the U.S. alliance structure to sort of stop Russia from doing that. Uh, But we might see the British get involved against Russia. There's conflict brewing. In a lot of places. And there are a lot of players. Who are adapting accordingly. and But there are a lot more players. Who are just passively going along. Under the assumption that there's not going to be a war. And I feel like they'll end up being the biggest losers. Uh, or. Or. They'll just find themselves. They'll just wake up one day. And they're under a new order. But the global order. Is disappearing. And it's being replaced with regional ones. And I talked about that in the last episode. But it seems like the events that we see over the last week has sort of reinforced that notion as well. Reinforced it as well. It's very interesting to think about. Very interesting to speculate on what what it's going to look like on the other side. Uh, ultimately, I just I just do not know... I do not know, because it really, given the conflicts that are brewing, what the peace is going to look like on the other side, what these various regional orders are going to be like, um, it's going to depend on who wins these conflicts that are looming and what degree to which they won. Uh, all right, so who wins the conflicts and what was the degree to which they were victorious? That's going to be the massive determining factor in how we move forward in the 21st century. It's going to be very different. Although I imagine that following those conflicts are going to be pretty good improvements in the standard of living for many people around the world. Even if a lot of those people end up being uh, subjugated by some new imperial power. Um, I namely, namely, I see China... This, in spite of their demographic issues, I see them having the chance, the chance, it's there, of being a big winner. And potentially even being the country, uh, the winner of the 21st century. Uh, and I guess I've stolen the catchphrase of the people who propagate uh, Cold War 2.0, where they say we have to win the 21st century. I'm not entirely sure if they know what they mean by that. Um, But whatever they mean by that, I'm not referring to that. I mean, uh, just as the 19th century was the British century, where Britain was sort of the the dominant power everyone was looking at, they were on top, number one. We might see that end up being the case for China through winning the war in Taiwan and establishing a peace centered around them. It doesn't mean that no one else can challenge them, but it means that they are number one, and that piece that comes after will enable them to focus their efforts on their Belt and Road and on their colonization in Africa, which is what they're going to lean on for the consumption of their exports. 
especially as their population ages. They might not be able to achieve growth doing that, but they can achieve stagnation. Now, unlike Japan, who was able to achieve sort of stagnation just on their own and through trade with other countries, China is huge, so they're going to need a bit more than what Japan did. But relative stagnation might still be an option for China, depending on how these looming conflicts go for it. And the same goes for Russia as well. I mean, they've really locked down a whole bunch of their border regions. The Caucasus, Central Asia, Crimea, Ukraine is next, and I imagine the Baltics are also going to be on the hit list at some point. The Belarus of the Belarus. The union state between them and Belarus is uh, more solid than it's ever been. We're, we're, we're seeing things really, really start to change, and we're really seeing sort of glimpses as to what the new world order, if you want to call it that, is going to be like. And the it's really not even going to be a world order at all. It's just going to be regional orders. And we're sort of getting a glimpse as to who some of those regional powers are going to be. Russia is going to return to being a juggernaut in Europe, but France is going to return to being an empire. So that counterbalances. There's Kanzuk off in the back somewhere. We, we don't know when it'll take effect, but if it does, Britain's back in the game. Um, and you have a European balance of power again. Just like that. You have Iran and Turkey. The Ottomans and the Persians are coming back. Iran's the dominant power now, but will they be in the future? Or will Turkey walk in? Will Turkey challenge them? I'd imagine that at some point after locking down the eastern Mediterranean, they will. But that's going to come first. That's going to come after conflict with France. Potential conflict over who's really the dominant power in the eastern Med. So lots of conflicts looming on the horizon but they are gonna they're gonna be pretty important i mean there's a lot of them uh and and if you're looking through the lens of how the global order is going to be after these this time of crisis that the world seems to be going into if you're looking for the global order you're probably gonna be out of luck and these conflicts are going to seem very small but when you look at it through the lens of returning to the multipolar world order uh, sort of pre nineteenth pre well sort of pre sixteenth uh, century really so before the fifteen hundreds where there were lots and lots and lots of imperial centers uh, around the world and lots and lots and lots of different spheres of influence and lots and lots and lots of competitions over those uh, spheres of influence and over markets and resource and access uh, to trade as we return to that if you view the world in that lens. If you view where we're going to, I should say, in that lens as that being the end goal, not a overarching global order, then what you're going to find is that a lot of these conflicts are very important. Who dominates North Africa is going to be important because that's a, a regional order. Who dominates the Middle East is going to be important because that's a regional order. Who dominates, say, Western or Eastern Europe? That's going to be important because those are going to establish regional orders. Who wins in Taiwan is going to be important, not because China is going to become the global superpower, but because that's going to establish a regional order in East Asia and will open the door to Chinese colonization, continued colonization in Africa. It won't be a global pax. There's not going to be a global... It will take a World War II in order to go back to the era of superpowers. Instead, we're witnessing conflicts that will give rise to the new great powers. And that's, that's the interesting thing about them. Uh, God bless whoever gets caught up in these conflicts. I know we, we here in America have a couple of our own that I would prefer not to be a part of, but uh, it looks like we are going to be. But uh, on the other side of this, on the other side of these conflicts, these regional orders, whoever dominates the region, will be themselves a great power.
or at least on the on the road to becoming a great power. The age of superpowers is going away, and we're returning to great powers. And these conflicts that are looming on the horizon are going to show us who those great powers will be. And that will set the tone for the rest of the century. The interaction between those great powers and their battle um, over their interests and over their spheres of influence and over their resources and their market accesses. It's going to be very, very interesting and very different from certainly what we've gotten to know. But we, I guess we, we can just watch what happens on the week-to-week basis. And I guess that's all we can really do. Uh, got into a massive rant about the future. And I guess it's sort of just me dumping my thoughts on you, but... Uh, that's the way I feel, given what, uh, given what I see and what I brought to you through our episodes that we do together. But yeah, definitely uh, lots of destabilizing forces, lots of conflict on the horizon. And I guess as that, as that pertains to Tunisia, with regards to the destabilization around them, um, will the destabilization cause Tunisia's house of cards to fall, or... Will they pull through like Sedan did? And will they be able to watch the world burn around them? We'll just have to wait and see. Just like we'll have to wait and see how these conflicts sort of work themselves out. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. There are great powers rising. And superpowers disappearing. But we're going to have fun watching that rise of the new age together. Now, I have been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, Servus.